0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the InDefense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Before we get to our episode, I just want to say, please consider supporting this podcast over at Patreon.com slash It's the only way I can make sure this show continues each and every week. So thank you to everyone who has contributed thus far. I couldn't be doing this without my patrons. But this week is a really, really interesting episode. It's a story that touches on far more areas of science than you would expect just hearing a surface-level pitch about it. Joining us is Dr. Andre Naranjo, who is here to share his passion for the scrubments. We're talking genera such as Dysarandra or Conradina. If you're from the Southeast, these will be familiar genre to you. But his story starts with taxonomy and tells an amazing tale about biogeography, deep time, evolution, endemism, and especially conservation. And it all focuses on understanding how many of these weird, rare, and endemic mints came to be. I'm going to let him tell the story because he is so passionate and it is so interesting. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Naranjo. I hope you enjoy. (laughs) Alright, Dr. Andre Naranjo, welcome to the podcast. I am so pumped to talk to you about your research tonight, but for those that aren't aware of it, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Alright, well, I um, I have to kind of trace my,
1: my botanical heritage back a little bit Um <laughs> It's been, I I kind of, you know, I, I walked into undergrad, um, like many other people in biology do, assuming kind of like a, a sort of a pre-med track, oh, yeah. and thinking I had to jump through all these certain hoops in order to get into a good program or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I, I had always really been interested in plants, particularly in flowering plants. Growing up in South Florida, hmm. um, I've always kind of had exposure to Kind of the showiest blooms, you know, whether it be gingers, orchids, (laughs) Um, and then, you know, surprisingly palms, you know, they have very large inflorescences, and I was kind of fascinated with them as a kid too. Nice. And um, so when I started at the University of Miami, I was kind of like, okay, well, I love plants, but I I don't know if I can make a a career out of it sort of thing. Jumped right into pre-med, right? Um, As time went on, I kind of, I ran into several different research mentors I had along the way. That kind of all sort of asked the same things. Like Andre, you're you're always talking about plants. Why don't why don't you do research <laughs> in plants? And this was like my um one of my undergrad advisors that was uh, studying uh, zebra fish. Oh, geez. And I was like, well, I don't I don't know where to start. Like, what 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 would I do? Um, and this advisor she she directed me to uh, a Professor in the department. Her name is uh, Barbara Whitlock. And um, I worked with her and her graduate student on this um, pine rockland species. So here in South Florida, there's a very critically endangered ecosystem called the pine rocklands. Um, It used to cover most of what is urban Miami-Dade County, Mm. and now less than 2% of of the ecosystem remains. And it's mostly all within Everglades National Park so I was like well this this sounds interesting you know this is I'm I've always been kind of like interested in conservation never really dipped my toes in it um but I had never really considered um evolutionary biology and in particular evolutionary botany as kind of like a, a path for me to take well all it took was literally six months for me to work on this project and I was sold nice. <laughs> I was completely sold on the idea um, I would, it was working on systematics of this, this group with the, with, um, Barbara's a uh, grad student, Wyatt Sharber, And, um, this was a bunch of cacao relatives hmm. and just thinking about how, you know, evolution in, in this little group of Malvaceae just kind of floral evolution is insane. They have very weird floral parts and they kind of look like Asclepias sometimes. Yeah. They have very weird shapes that, you know, formerly Sterculeaceae and, um, uh. And I was like, well, you know, there's there's lots of these very narrow distributed species. I kind of became kind of enthralled pretty quickly with narrowly ranged species. Mm. Um, you know, endemic taxa, um, and kind of what what drives endemism and and what are the sort of um sort of the climatological, more than anything, the climatological and geological factors that kind of make a species or make a clade an endemic clade to a certain habitat or biodiversity region right so you know bright-eyed and bushy-tailed I mean straight out of undergrad (laughs) um with with you know really only just one year of botanical research under my belt I started playing the grad programs and um very quickly uh had a few faves um (laughs) but I think you know I I, being a Florida boy, <laughs> I really had to, uh, I really had a bias, um, to the University of Florida, um, partially because a lot of the papers I'd been reading in undergrad were by these, you know, these two people, um, called Pam and Doug Soltis. <laughs> and they are they are you know, pumping out a lot of research, a lot of, they are doing a lot of phylogeography, they were doing a lot of, um, they're doing studying uh, one of their postdocs and grad students at the time were studying scrub plants and i was hmm. very interested in florida scrub because it's such a alien habitat yeah. in such a otherwise wet and swampy state right totally and i was just like well i need to send them an email and apply applied um i met them nicest people ever as uh blaine a few weeks ago might have mentioned <laughs> yeah <they> and are. <laughs> um I kind of found myself surrounded by people that were more or less having the same sorts of questions. So I was like, this, this is a, an easy answer for me. And I started off kind of working on um, this pr- project I kind of, kind of come up with over the summer um, before I started grad school. Uh, like a lot of other grad students going in, especially me, since I didn't really have a master's and I was just beginning to just formulate my research ideas, I was sort of like, well, the opposite of endemic species, widely distributed right. species, very large ranges. I was like thinking about Easter rubrum, red maple. Hmm. I was thinking about Cephalanthus occidentalis, um, hmm. It has It's found everywhere from the Central Valley of California, all the way to Maine, all the way into Northern Cuba. <laughs> and woody plants that were kind of widely distributed. Yeah. So I know walked into the grad program thinking I was going to do that, submitted a few grants, didn't really get anything about that. And I remember one day I was meeting with Pam um, Saltus, and she told me, well, I have a really cool side project that I think you would like to work on. And it's about this um, group of mints, um, and their name is Dice Randra. And it was just kind of funny. you know. I, instantly, I heard the name, and I was like, trying to do the Greek and Latin etymology <laughs> of the roots of the name. Gears are turning. Um, and I was like, because I know Andre Andra. Oh, yeah, it means it has the same roots, man. Um, and so I was like, okay, sure, I'll, I'll take it up. It was an IDIC bio project I was more than happy to do. Hmm. It's originally just working on some ecological niche modeling using locality data that was available. And very quickly, I I just kind of fell over head over heels in love with this group. <laughs> Um, and not just Dicerandra, um, um, just that one clade, but its sister clades as well. Um, Conradina, um, Stachydioma, they're, they're relatively small genera, but together yeah. all the members of this, what I, you know, I, I call, or a lot of other people call, um, the scrub mint clade. <laughs> it's, um, because it, it's just kind of crazy, the, um, the diversity and still in relatively small uh, group of plants, but they're entirely endemic um, Mm. to the North American coastal plain. And, you know, I was just kind of like, GIF of the lady with the math uh, (laughs) equations flying by her head, (laughs) slowly making sense of all of my interests And I kind of had this realization that, like, this is the perfect group with the perfect sort of format in terms of, you know, diversity, in terms of niches, in terms of habitats that it occupies, in terms of being extraordinarily small and also being extraordinarily endangered. A lot of these, Mm. um, a lot of these species, particularly in Dyserandria, are federally or state listed endangered. So i approached pam and was like well that site project you gave me i want to make it my full project yo <laughs> yo right now
0: nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um and then i don't know it just it all came together within a month wow within two months i i had written this little grf proposal and i got it funded and nice. i was like this is it yeah. let's do it That's let's do it. it and just you know put rubber to pavement and started running with it and You know i was i of all the chapters i kind of focused on i I was really most interested in biogeography um kind of teasing apart ancestral areas um and trying to make sense of it um all within the context of a clade of mostly narrowly distributed species that are found only in this um in this area right Mm mm-hmm And um, I mean, funny enough, I started my Ph.D. in 2015, and that was the same year that Reed Noss, professor at the University of Central Florida, published this seminal paper about recognizing the North American coastal plain as a biodiversity hotspot. Nice. Right. And it was um, just everyone all of a sudden was like, wow, the the new, the new sexy biodiversity province on <laughs> on the map, the North American coastal plain, and it was literally right underneath the, our our you know our noses the whole time, right? Yeah. I mean, southeastern botanists, you don't have to tell them that they've known. sure, right. <laughs> right? They've known and and they're very, they've always been very aware and and, and understandably a little bit protective about yeah. the the great amount of diversity and and just really the the plethora of really cool um plants that there are out here, right? Um and so with that, you know, it it really was a teasing apart. I mean, just like any other grad student mm-hmm. kind of has say um how I have big questions. Yeah. <laughs> how do I answer how do right, I even right. about beginning to kind of tease it all apart, right? And I mean, you know, I I I'm extraordinarily thankful to, you know, my advisors and all the mentoring that they gave me, but also to the other grad students I I worked with in the lab that were a little (laughs) bit more senior than me. You know, I was a lot of people kind of get discouraged when they're going straight from undergrad into a grad, you know, into a PhD program. Totally. um, Because they usually go in with people that already have masters already have their own theses that, you know, know the methods that kind of have all this whole toolkit at their disposal (laughs) right and i was going in with like nothing
0: (laughs) (laughs) totally green it
1: was learning from scratch yeah um and it was a bit daunting
0: Uh, yeah um
1: so you know i always have to shout out um everyone that helped me along the way and particularly one of my best friends was um in in my program was anthony Melton, um who now works on sagebrush genomics but Moving on from that, I just you know I was like, what sort of data set do I need? Um, how do I go about kind of even building the tree that they then kind of assume or run all of my analyses off of? Right. This is something that in in systematics and phylogenetics and in, in people that are doing sort of biodiversity work, generally speaking, the tree is is the basis on which you 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 kind of run everything, right? Right. And so developing the data set to build the tree was the first obstacle, right? Mm -hmm. This, um, this is a group. So I was, you know, I, I, I had done Sanger sequencing. And for people that don't know Sanger, it's you choose a gene, you know, a lot of times it's an RBCL gene, a MATK gene. Lots of times it's, it's plastid. Sometimes there's these nuclear markers that are used and you sequence those and then you can build trees using them or a few of them, a suite of them. Hmm. But uh, this is, this has been already uh, been done in this group back in 2006. Uh, it had been done for the scrubments, for Dice Rancher and for Conradina. And there was, you know, conflicting topologies. The trees were either very poor resolution hmm. or the relationships were a little foggy. Um, So I kind of wanted to, um, you know, use one of these new methods that everyone was kind of talking about, target capture, um, which essentially allows you to choose a whole set of nuclear genes. You get to screen um, genes to make sure that they're not of polyploid origin. So you're not getting kind of like a weird conflicting story with. You know, polyploidy is (laughs) (laughs) ubiquitous in angiosperms, as as I'm sure has been mentioned by countless other guests on your show. So tricky. Yeah, extremely tricky. And, you know, there there was there is a little bit of polyploidy in the group. Um, Nothing crazy. um, Just some some um some some ploidy in certain species but it had already been well described and i was able to kind of clear any of those genes that could have been a paralogous origin out of mm. the data set i ended up using and you know bioinformatics it's just you know you, you use some transcriptomes i didn't have any transcriptomes in the group that i was working with like mm-hmm. a lot of other people usually get to do <laughs> but i kind of had to use the you know the next best thing Thankfully, there are a whole bunch of mint Genome Project transcriptums that are available for me to use. Oh, nice. Yeah, um, used 18 of them. It was awesome. I wow. um, was able to get 238 genes, um, sent those off to get sequenced, you know, the, 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 the more the library prep stuff. I mean, I was still at a point in my career where I could not handle <laughs> <laughs> the... Um, the bioinformatic load <laughs> uh, on me to do all that nitty gritty library prep and, and I can sorting, imagine, yeah, yeah, and sorting through all that uh, raw data. Um, but once it got back to me in a slightly more clean <laughs> and <a> slightly more <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> manageable, you. <laughs> um, uh, you know, format, I just started running all these analyses. So I'm using maximum likelihood methods, using Bayesian and if fo- focus more on anything than on a maximum likelihood um for better or for worse the salt I have a bit of a an M, you know a maximum likelihood bias because sure. there are so many methods that are dependent right. on like maximum likelihood uh, pseudo likelihood uh, penalized likelihood so it's best to have them all under the same sort of um algorithm yeah sort of, right yeah. um and i was really interested in dating this tree i was really i wanted to make sure i wanted to see more than anything when this clade sort of came about when was it's it's at least for for extant species i can't there's (laughs) all right so you know (laughs) a a disclaimer that i should have been given at the beginning was there are no fossils in this group oh no there's no pollen in this group there's no no. pollenological records even remotely, you know, kind of close it, in the subfamily in in the petioide and right. the in the catnip subfamily, there there are a few you know purported salvia pollen grains that are dated, and and those have been essentially the basis for a lot of mint dating analyses.
0: That's a rough it's, thing it's to rough. have to it's fall rough. back on, and just that limb pickings <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Yikes. slim
1: pickings, um, but you make the best of it. And, yeah. you know, you make sure that you're you know, the priors and and the data that you're giving, um, whatever divergence time estimation analysis you want to do. Um, and, you know, so I based it off of these secondary calibrations from uh, this collaborator's paper that was recently published and was was pretty reliable and had been kind of cleared by other people in the community as having acceptable dates, Mm -hmm. um, given, given other, you know, fossil or pollen records. And, um, and so from there, I, I, I kind of did. So for, I mean, the systematists and the phylogenetics people listening will, you know, all, will all kind of be familiar with um, BEAST, which is this Bayesian method that's been kind of like the standard for dating. But I wanted to do um, something that was a little bit less Computationally um, <laughs> expensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, this is something to consider a lot. Um, you know, it's something that kind of came about. People were talking a lot about when when Bitcoin and and uh, all these crypto <laughs> uh, crypto coins started going on the on the market, and then people were talking about blockchain. People were talking about the computational resources, right, that goes into these things and the carbon footprint that they have, right. Hmm um things to things to consider so and for you know for instance on my data set I I had to run both I needed to have you know eventually for reviewers and for my you know people on my committee I oh, needed yes. to be able to show for both so I did I did a Bayesian and I did um um a penalized likelihood um uh, analysis the penalized likelihood took about 15 seconds <laughs> <laughs> and utilized a total of two meg- um, two megabits per second. Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Very small amount of RAM. Yeah. Um, it, it was like less than 0.01% of the resources I had given the job. So, like quick plug and chug kind of moment extremely it was <laughs> and it was amazing and um and i was even i was even able to get confidence intervals for Ooh, each node so i was able to get a range of dates for each node which was always the kind of like the sticking point oh this is why you do bayesian you have a distribution yeah that's i mean that's that's great but um but then on the flip side for my data set for beast to um and people are familiar with bayesian, bayesian methods they know about stationarity essentially when the when the this algorithm it's called an mcmc runs eventually it kind of finds an optimum and it kind of plateaus and then you're like okay well it reached stationarity it means that it has given me the best possible tree it could find ah
0: yeah because it's making bunches of them and then eventually it just settles running them
1: for millions and millions millions of generations so I, i had to run Four different 250 million generation jobs. Oh. They each consumed 10 gigabytes of RAM. <laughs> and that ran for over 360 hours each. Oh God. Ow. <laughs> and so I had a billion generation analysis. No big deal. And I had optimized everything to, I had, you know, only I had re- reduced the data set. So I had to reduce my data set. I had to use... <sighs> Instead of all 238 genes like I was able to use for my maximum likelihood, I had to reduce it to 50 clock-like genes. Ugh. So I wasn't even, you know, I wasn't even able to use my full data set. And I was still <sighs> occupying all of these resources. Dang. And for really, I mean, it was... Kind of debatable. It was
0: like for what? <laughs> yeah, but tell that to the reviewers. Really, tell that to the reviewers. No,
1: yeah. I, I, I will do everything to please the reviewers.
0: <laughs> <don't>, they're listening,
1: <laughs> especially reviewer number two right here. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're there. They're there. They're there. Um, I, you know, ultimately, I, I got both trees. I, I ran in with my maximum likelihood tree, um, because it was based off of my species tree which was my species coalescent tree, uh, <laughs> um, which for those people and uh, don't know too much about systematics there, you know, there's obviously a whole bunch of debate about methods about sure. which tree is the true tree. Will you, will you ever be able to find the yeah. true tree, which is better? Is there a, is the species coalescent model based tree? The best is a concatenated tree best. Is a- <laughs> I could go on yeah go
0: and on. it just goes to show you how much you know you really have to work to get to some of this stuff
1: it is it, it's kind of um it's kind of mind-numbing sometimes yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> i was i remember there was just a stretch a good six-month stretch in my in my in my doctorate that i was just kind of like just resubmitting an analysis resubmitting an analysis <laughs> using a slightly different parameter in case somebody asked for it in case they kind of completely changed the distribution or rather the the topology of the tree. That's kind of like the number one fear of somebody in systematics is different analyses giving you different results with relatively high levels of confidence from the analysis, right? (laughs) It's a really horrifying situation to find yourself
0: in. Yeah. And I got to finally meet (laughs) someone that it's not the phylogenetic part that they know, but they're the programmers that figure out branching patterns and mat- like they're the ones that put in the effort into just the branching part of it. And you go exactly. Oh, I've, we should be talking more. I think
1: <laughs> we should be communicating. Yeah, yeah. Right? As I mean, for a lot of a lot of systematists and phylogenetics focused people, it's sort of a black box.
0: Yeah, yeah, big time.
1: And I mean, I'm, I'm sure they'll they'll agree with me. I mean, unless you you've had a course that's really like devoted to going into the, the the very high level math, calculus, multivariate statistics, that all kind of goes into this. You're just kind of like doing a hail mary and, and, pr- and praying that the people behind sure. the program
0: <laughs> know what they're doing. Right? Yeah. Well, there's PhDs on that one too. So, right? right. No, thank goodness, thank yeah. goodness. And I've met a few, and,
1: and you know, it's just it's kind of funny because um when i was a kid i, I kind of i really wanted to be a meteorologist a, a weather person <laughs> and i had this idea that it was just oh you know clouds oh you're forecasting no it's just math
0: yeah <laughs> a lot, i kind a lot of ran math. away
1: <laughs> i kind of ran away from meteorology because of the math yeah I fell into biology and now i'm realizing oh everything's <laughs> should
0: have learned that should have paid more attention did my homework just, yeah
1: could have just you know put up with calc two and calc three while i, while I was there yeah um but you know it, it it just you know going along with that um so yeah no i i ran i ran these analyses i got my i got a nice dated tree and i i quickly i i looked at a chart of geological epochs (laughs) and I looked at my tree alongside it and it was sort of uncanny um how things lined up Mm. uh, in terms of events along the tree and um and so the ancestor for the entire clade was reconstructed to about um 3.9 million years ago okay um, and to give people a little bit of context, this is the um, the beginning of the late Pliocene. okay. The late Pliocene was a period of time that was really characterized by what we be, what we kind of call the, the glacial cycles, right? Right This is where um, the amplitude and the oscillation of a global climate begins to increase. Mm. And where you begin to see this sort of um, switch to, interglacial and glacial what um is kind of posited um for you know I'll I'll touch upon this a little bit more when you know talking about how ancestral area evolution relates to the the dates right yeah um there's always been a lot of debate um about where scrub plants come from right um, the Florida scrub is a really sort of alien habitat in the areas it sort of finds itself. Um, it's you know keep in mind Florida is an emergent platform from the sea, right? quite literally. <laughs> yes, quite literally. <laughs> um, it um its history and its evolution as a landmass is inextricably linked to the you know the in, the glacial cycles, right? Yeah. Um, And the um, sort of intermittent, the weathering of North America during interglacials, kind of just releasing all this sediment onto this Florida platform. And then these uh, glacial maximum where the sea level drops and then that sediment that deposited onto the shallow sea, now all of a sudden above water, right? Right.
0: And so when we talk about sea level drop in this context we're talking like a few hundred feet but when you're thinking about Florida where like a couple feet make a massive difference like 300 massive. feet is unfathomable unfathomable in yeah. the context
1: of Florida right and right. you know people that study modern Florida ecosystems they can all tell you you go to the Everglades and sometimes the you know the difference between a dry hammock habitat and like a sawgrass slough is a matter of inches right long. exactly and this is modern florida yeah <laughs> <laughs> so if you're able to have that sort of ecological differentiation in you know in such a close proximity with such slow and amp- just low amplitude mm-hmm. difference in, in elevation kind of makes you think what was what was happening when the sea level was dropping <laughs> hundreds of meters <laughs> right yeah. Yeah. And it's during those times that that these ridges begin kind of popping up. And, you know, there's these areas along along the kind of skeleton of Florida that begin kind of showing up as as habitat. Mm. But um, so then the question was, okay, so this is a they're dry, relatively speaking, um, especially during glacial periods. They're sandy. They're super sandy. They're xeric. You go out to them during the summer and like your eyes are burning because of how, <laughs> how bright. Yeah. And the white sand ones, yeah. the albedo is insane. It's, brutal. it's just like brutal. It's really it's in the middle of the peninsula, so the sea breezes take forever to get there. <laughs> <laughs> All it's, the best things about the coast are gone. <laughs> gone. Exactly. Yeah. It's just the harshest things about Florida are found there. <laughs> and it's, and it, subsequently, it's also the coldest area in Florida yeah. during the winter. Okay. So you're kind of ha- you, you're dealing with a place with a pretty you know extreme sort of habitat. Yeah. For a very long period of time, people were convinced that it was um, that these uh, you know the plants in the scrub were of a west a western affinities. So mm-hmm. They were of southwestern affinities. They were they were more like the things that were in South Texas yeah. and similarly kind of scrubby but not fully arid but aridifying sort of habitats they just kind of crossed across the northern Gulf Hmm. during dry periods of the, you know, or very late of the late Pliocene and early Pleistocene. Right. Um, But in the case, I guess in the case of these guys, um, they're very much a product of eastern relatives. Oh. Yeah. There's um, no western affinities in this group. And it seems in all of their closest relatives are are found across the eastern seaboard.
0: Right. Uh, Right. Because right. you do get members of this clade, at least mm-hmm. at the generic level, like you get up into like Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee. That's what you will find. Yeah.
1: Like and a whole bunch of other closely related. Yeah. Minorities.
0: They're, you know, they're,
1: they're eastern, they're they're coastal plain or close uh, nearby sort of species. Right. right. You're not growing in in extraordinarily arid sort of habitats. Um, So, I mean, quickly off the bat. Um, we were able to kind of based off of our tree and then based off of, uh, our biogeography analysis, we were able to tell that the clade was of, a, an Eastern
0: origin. Good. Nice.
1: Right. And we were specifically, you know, we were able to kind of, um, find the answer, the ancestor, we were able to infer that the ancestor occurred in what is nowadays the Apalachicola river, um, area, nice. um, yeah which again, you talk to any southeastern uh, botanist and you ask them where, where is the hot where is one of the hottest hot spots in the southeast? Oh
0: yeah, I think that's yeah. Apalachicola region is one of my favorite regions on the continent. So if that tells you anything, right. it is fantastic. Today
1: it is an amazing museum of biodiversity and, and all the things that live in its ravines. I mean, you know, I could I could go on things yeah. with northern affinities today, right? Um, but it's you know previously been described as a climatic refugium. Hmm. It was an area of North America that um, comparatively to other regions, and I have preliminary data, but not um, <laughs> not published data. Um, on climatic stability in the southeast and the hottest area well the, the um the most stable region okay um in the north american coastal plain based off of my analysis was was that area of the northern gulf coast in what's now um florida
0: panhandle nice
1: and so from there you kind of you begin asking the questions of like okay so if they're from you know they're 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 in the Apalachicola. This ancestor of this whole clade is in the Apalachicola. How does it begin to distribute itself to neighboring areas? And how does it distribute itself to new areas that are literally in the process of being born out of the ocean?
0: So, can we take a moment there to talk about this ancestral idea? Because I think when people hear ancestor, you know, you you picture your relatives or maybe even a generation or two back where. Maybe mm-hmm. you met him if, you know, when you were a kid at least. But, you know, when we're talking ancestral lineages and sort of the evolutionary context, so what you were able to find is at least there was one, like an ancestor that gave rise to everything you've studied today. Right. Uh, but this idea that it, you know, it's probably not out there, right? Like it, it, by the, what you had kind of hinted at earlier, the, this idea of an ancestor hanging around, it's not like... uh yeah. Oh yeah, there's there's we know where it came from. It's the species up here. It's it's like Australopithecus. It's long gone. Like we can't go right. back and be like, oh yeah, we met that guy.
1: <laughs> exactly. No, this is something that's actually um, really interesting. Is you know it happens a lot to people that study study scats. They always have to deal with the <laughs> the label of the living fossils. Ah right? yes, <laughs> yes, the living fossils. And you know my my solidarity goes out to them. I <laughs> it's just. You know, it's a it's an attractive story to tell people in the public that, you know, these things four million years ago, you know, we try to think about what these ecosystems look like. And it's kind of difficult to, you know, we have a general idea that they were like pine savannas with maybe with wire grass. They were, you know, kind of like that. But the ancestor, as as I'm describing it now, um had probably hasn't existed for several millions of years there
0: <laughs> <Fair>. long gone
1: <laughs> right right and it's um and it's you know when you look at a at a, at a phylogeny right mm-hmm. and you look at these nodes what you know what you're looking at is a phylogeny reconstructed based off of what we know of the extant species right right okay I have at least in this clade um no way of knowing how many other species <laughs> existed um co-currently with extant species sure. or with, you know things in the past yeah you know it, currently this 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 clade has 24 species 24 described species but who knows if um 500,000 years ago there were 38 hmm. and they've just you know gone extinct in, the, in this period right. of time and and yeah no and, and who knows maybe there are extant species that had ancient hybridization events with these extinct <laughs> species yeah kind of like how you know humans and um homo sapiens and homo neanderthalus kind of right right did, yeah, did their tango a long time ago and now neanderthals don't really exist right yeah they but exist they're, as they're, like
0: a percentage of our dna of our anyway. dna yeah right? yeah exactly and so you know, it's just
1: um, kind of uh, instilling a bit of tree thinking here. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. It's, don't don't get like you know like any any a phylogeny is a hypothesis, right? And, That's a. And-
0: Think, you might be the first person on this podcast to have said that just outright <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's,
1: yeah. It's, it's exactly it is based it's in, it's a an inference based off of what we know, what we can see, what we can yeah you know in this case I used genes and past maybe it was just morphology. I mean I it, I would be very it would be very arrogant of me to say that you know <laughs> this is the tree right this is the only tree. do not trust
0: anyone that says that you know, it's exactly it's, yeah
1: it, it's silly, it's silly. Um, so, you know, this is my hypothesis, this is my tree, and this is the thing that I'm going to use to answer questions about the natural history of this group, right?
0: You just hope the math and everything came together to give you the best tree possible to make (laughs) that
1: hypothesis. Yeah, right on the money, right, exactly. And so when I'm talking about this ancestor occurring in the Apalachicola, you know, I Think about it as being a different plant. Don't maybe you know? Don't don't conceive of it as, as being maybe had different colored flowers in species. Maybe yeah. it was it had a totally different form. I don't know. I didn't run right. No way of predicting instructions that. Instructions <laughs> to know yet, but <laughs> <laughs> but I was able to tell you know with more or less a little with a relatively moderate to high degree of of certainty that it occurred in this area, right? Mm. And and then from there. I wanted to see where what sort of events kind of occurred um, and how it subsequently distributed to these new regions that were appearing out of the sea. Right. <laughs> Quite literally. Yes, <laughs> literally, literally. <laughs> and, you know, here's another thing to think about, um, and, and it's something that I kind of I try to address in my paper. Ancestral area reconstructions, this biogeographic analysis that, you know, a lot of people like to do, um, isn't as rigid as people want to think of it, right? Mm. Um, So when I reconstruct an ancestral area to the Apalachicola, I'm like, okay, well, this is the area that was reconstructed as being the home of that ancestor. But it's kind of difficult, um, to then quantify the size of the range, the um, number of populations, mm. the effect that oscillations in ancient climate <laughs> might have had on that distribution, right? Right. So this is where I tried to kind of uh, fill in the gap a bit. And, you know, considering the limitations of these ancestral area reconstructions and biogeography, I wanted to map out more or less what um what suitable areas uh, might have looked like hmm. back in back in these different nodes. So this is where the tree comes into play again nice. <laughs> and in using the tree that I ran my my um my divergence time estimation, I kind of looked at what extant niches look like currently. Mm-hmm able to extract a whole bunch of climatological variable data um, for the suitability of it, of these current ranges. And then using this ancestral reconstruction pipeline, which I can go into the method. <laughs> well, we're able to kind of reconstruct this environmental tolerance for all of these ancestral nodes. Wow, which we can then, map on kind of like an ecological niche model.
0: Yeah.
1: onto a, um, ancestral, not ancestral, but a paleoclimatic condition. Right. Nice. So, right. So we're, you know, I'm able to kind of look, not just at ancestral area. I'm able to look at where is there suitable habitat in, um, in the, you know, in the interglacial periods, where could it have been? And where was suitable habitat potentially during glacial maxima?
0: Dang,
1: yeah, yeah. So I'm able to at least get a little bit more of a of a, a fuller picture. You know? Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and then you know it kind of it kind of corresponded. But what what was kind of was interesting to me was so these these uh these this reconstruction pipeline that I ran also gives you areas of like hottest you know of, of best suitability it's kind of yeah. like a heat um and you know this species these these species in general are pretty poor dispersers they're um sort of limited in dispersal capability um they have small uh, schizocarpic seeds. <laughs> the only the only thing that they really have going for them in terms of dispersal is these little mucilaginous glands (laughs) on the sides of the seed that wait in these sands forever essentially (laughs) yeah for it to downpour one day and anyone that's been in florida knows that during the summer the storms are (laughs) top notch epic yeah And, you know, in in these fast draining sands, little small little rivers will form and carry these Hmm. geyser carbs. you know, at best, maybe two or four meters downhill or down scrub from plants. And so I think keeping that in mind, it's, you know, I I looked at the the suitability map that this pipeline gave us, and there are several areas of very high suitability um, Hmm. among them the Piedmont region and the Appalachians of Georgia oh so just south of the Appalachians um peninsular florida and so this is right this was during the uh, interglacial periods okay so warm periods they were up in you know, Piedmont region was a hot spot peninsular florida was a hot spot and generally speaking all of the northeast gulf coast okay which corresponds uh roughly to you know to the Apalachicola region that was reconstructed right but then the weirdest thing um, was during the glacial maximum um, periods, it was projected to just having a small, low suitability sliver of habitat along this huge Florida platform. So essentially, um, big Florida, but, but just this little kind of crescent-shaped distribution along the, the coastlines. And it was a bow of low suitability. And so we were kind of shaking we were kind of like scratching our heads um because these are plants that occur in a scrub they belong to a clade of plants that um that roughly that you know so this this subfamily of mints that they find themselves in um a lot of their diversity came about during um xerification periods mm. When climate was aridifying, these mints diversified. Um, but, and so we kind of assumed the same thing. We were kind of assuming that during glacial maximum, the, dist- the suitability would be much higher. These distributions would be kind of all over, you know, for these ancestors to be more or less overlapping, they'd be at least more broad than they are today. And so this kind of just poured a little bit of cold water on that theory. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right, right. And... You know, and the more I think about it, the more I have to kind of call these scrub mints kind of Goldilocks plants. <laughs> mm-hmm. They they are they're clearly adapted for for relatively narrow niches, mm-hmm. um, especially these scrub adapted species. But it seems that they're they don't like too dry, and they definitely don't like too wet. Um, so. It seems that the um, the process into aridification helped their diversification. But then once they found themselves mm-hmm. in those truly arid periods, they just kind of helped put.
0: So if I'm understanding you correctly, it was that little, there was like almost a Goldilocks period where they found their good conditions everywhere. Or right. in more spaces. And then, boom, it shifted. And now they're right. just isolated in those little pockets where that right. hung on. Exactly right. Sweet. So
1: our our you know my uh, Pam and Doug and I, we we really kind of just rattle our heads over this. <laughs> and you know, in and going to the literature and we kind of came upon the idea that during aridification periods, during the, the the sort of descent into aridity, they were able to outcompete other plants in the habitats that they found themselves in. Because they were better adapted to the new drier habitats mm-hmm. that were appearing while these other species might have not have been as readily um, not, not more more likely to diversify given the climatic circumstances that they were finding that they were in.
0: Right, right, because you can kind of think right. of this period of of you know glacial interglacial. I mean, a lot of stuff was chased to the southeast, quote unquote, by the glaciers, right. and mm. you probably, you know, without a doubt, had things that were already established down there, and so you can you can almost imagine sort of tropical Florida, so to speak, coming under threat during the drier right. periods because you just you're just bound to whatever those plants are bound to whatever moist areas are left. That's true. Right. Yeah, and then you got your scrub mint clay just taking advantage of those marginal areas that whole time.
1: Right. Exactly. And so, um, that's kind of the, the idea that we kind of settled upon as, as based off of our data, that's, yeah. this is probably the most likely story. And, um, and, you know, and our going back to the, uh, biogeographic analysis that we did at the beginning, um, looking at dicerandra um, there's two clades within Dyserandra. Uh, there's a perennial clade, which is um, found almost exclusively in the central Florida scrub. Um, and then you have the annual Dyserandras, which are more, they have wider distributions and they're found further north.
0: Hmm.
1: They're more like southern Georgia. They're in true longleaf pine savannah sort of habitats. And even some of them are found along riverbeds. Oh. So they're kind of flirting with this. They like the sand but they kind of like the moisture in this situation right and then there's a few there's a few other examples of that happening in another experiment species and so you know we were able to kind of find that from that from the from this eastern georgia what we call the altamaha river area Mm -hmm. um during um periods of, of climatic flux um Plants in that area, in in other areas in the southeast, would then, you know, would subsequently still return to the Apalachicola. So, Hmm. a lot of these reconstructed ranges we saw were first it was Apalachicola, but then plants that were then found in Lake Wells Ridge were also um, reconstructed, also being found in the Apalachicola. And plants that were found in the Altamaha were also reconstructed, that, you know, those ancestors were also being found. In the Apalachicola. So, the kind of like the all roads lead back to Apalachicola. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it just kind of, it, you know, as time goes on and as the Florida platform grows and as the Lake Wells Ridge is fully developed, and then this other ridge starts forming. It's called the Atlantic Coastal Ridge. It's much younger, hmm. um, it's uh, only a few hundred thousand years old as opposed to the Lake Wells Ridge, which is a few million years old. Um, you kind of see the, um, the the little skipping between ridges, right? Yeah. It's you think about the Lake Wells Ridge as kind of being like the Florida Keys. There's you know a chain of islands originally, right? And as the time goes on, they start expanding. The Lake Wells Ridge is more or less the same. Uh, sorry, the Atlantic Coastal Ridge is more or less the same. Um, and so from so essentially from the Apalachicola, a lot of these dicerandra uh, distributed to the Lake Wells Ridge. And then from the Lake Wells Ridge, those species, those um, an ancestor distributed to the Atlantic Coastal Ridge, and there might have there might have been some back and forth between mm. ridges as well, and that's something that was uh, reconstructed. So wow. you know a little there's leakiness between regions, sure. and um, the you know I guess the ultimate question is when was the leakiness most likely to have occurred, mm. um, the interglacial or glacial maximal periods, right? When, you know, when, when these kind of, a you know, another way of looking at the speciation and diversification that we find in this group, it, you know, can be explained pretty relatively simply. Um, a new species distributes to a new Island, a new scrub Island that, spe- that, you know, population is isolated, um, for, you know, X amount of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. and um then, when climatic optimum happen, the sister species kind of might touch ranges again. There might be some hybridization, mm. and then when that climatic optimum is over, they retreat back to those refugia and they keep on doing the same thing in flux for each for each uh, <laughs> cycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wash, rinse, repeat. Wow. Um, and that's what we've kind of. That's those processes are essentially driving um, the diversification that we see in the group. Um, not just in Dice Ranger, but also in Conradina. So I like to kind of, I I like to call the clade, um, they're, you know, they're truly children of the place. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of like you think about it, it's it, the, the per, Florida is the perfect storm for something like this to occur yeah. because you have a landmass that changes far more radically than most other landlocked areas during those glacial, interglacial periods. I mean, we think of the glacial period as kind of this one thing. There were just these massive ice sheets, but no, it waxed and waned, and everything's kind of waxing and waning with it. And you can kind of understand endemism and the rates that you find it in these areas in that context of like, yeah, they took advantage of periods that were good and then were really isolated every other moment. And when you factor in the lack of really dispersal capabilities, it just makes more sense because they're not... Quickly mm-hmm. getting back out to recolonize new areas during those "quote unquote" favorable they're, periods. They're sort of
1: self-isolating.
0: Yeah, you know, they're, they're social distancing. Men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We do it long enough, we end up with a right. whole new human. <laughs> no, human. <laughs> right. Right. no,
1: it's it's it, it's you know it's uh, it's uh, introductory biology, but right. it's really kind of cool to see it play out in a landscape that is particularly you know dramatically affected by that glacial cycle yeah. right um both in a climatic sense and a, in a just a space sense right, right. there's
0: only you know, so much room to go <laughs> right exactly <laughs> yeah. when you're
1: going when you're going from barrier island to you know large platform of land and that's just going on and on for you know at least three million years
0: <laughs> Endemism is going to happen <laughs> Right, right. And it, Yeah, let's not downplay the amount of time It's not 100,000 years here We're talking millions And that, you yep. know, quite a bit um, right. You know, even in the context of geology But what's even more fascinating to me and, and what I love about work like yours And and like really like the Soltis lab And your colleagues in general Is the fact that you guys It's so easy to think of taxonomy kind of happening In a lab, in an herbarium With some calculations Okay, we got a tree This one's related to this. this That's cool but then you add all of the layers of confirmation or at least like going exploring climatic models, geologic time periods. And, and what's great is no matter which angle you want to slice it off and, and tackle on your own, whether you're a geologist or a taxonomist, you name it, yeah, you're getting echoes of all of this. It's almost like we can't look into the past, but boy, we can see little ripples. And, and when little they little kind ripples, of converge probably. into a story like that makes sense that there's some confirmation there from multiple different realms of science, to me that's right. like... The hair stands up on the back of my neck i'm like yeah. oh my god we got a little time machine we just got to know how to look for it when, when you know i was working
1: on this and, and you know working on a on a clay that's entire oh you know entirely endemic to this hot spot yeah and i when i started getting the results i i saw and i was just kind of like wow this is the story <laughs> yeah we got this something is here a story of of these plants it's a story of this landscape and um and, and it's just you know and it's not only that it's also just kind of like a model um yeah. for how you know this might be occurring similarly in in other groups and you know both in this biodiversity hotspot and and others right yeah and you know in, in, in I'm, I'm thinking about it more and i you know i was really after doing all of those biogeographic analyses and, and trying to find out ancestral ranges. I, you know, I still kind of was like, well, I still have a tree. I have a dated tree. Uh, I know the ages of these clades now, and I want to see what these, the distributions of these, of these plants, the ages of these nodes kind of tells me about endemism, at least the age of endemism across mm. the
0: landscape, right? Yeah. Cool question.
1: Yeah. And um, and knowing, you know, obviously people talk so much about uh, endemism in the Lake Wells Ridge. They talk about endemism in Apalachicola. They talk about there are lots of of these like, you know, little museums or um, cradles of biodiversity (laughs) all across this this hotspot. Right. And so, you know using the tree that i have and using the clade and using the locality data that i already had collected from from you know some of my field work past, you know past trips that have been done um kind of threw it all together um and tried to identify hotspots of neoendemism so um neoendemism Im- Im- implies that this is a a new a new event of endemism this is a and for people thinking about trees, these are short, um, narrowly distributed branches. So these are um, terminals on the tree that have, they're very short time, you know, they're yeah. relatively young, they're ra- ra- relatively rapid radiation, and they're found in a relatively narrow area of um, of habitat, right? Or paleoendemism, um, which is the exact opposite, old lineage. Um, but it's still found in a relatively narrow area or if it was a mixture of both. Hmm. And, you know, I kind of walked into it thinking that, you know, I might get paleoendemism in the Apalachicola. I might get neoendemism in some of the areas that are of younger origin. And I, you know, I got some of the results (laughs) I was expecting, (laughs) but, um, I, I was I was kind of shocked that Apalachicola was not huh. recovered as a paleoendemism hotspot, at least for this clade. And yeah. I'm, you know, when you look at you know other clades, this might be a different story. But what I did get um, was a lot of mixed endemism along the Lake Wales Ridge, meaning that there was the presence of both long and short branches that of uh, taxa that were relatively rare. Wow. And then I got a really well. This this one I can at least confirmed my hypothesis that along the Atlantic Coastal Ridge, um, I got we were able to um, uncover a hotspot of neoendemism. Oh, which sort of corresponds to what we kind of knew already. Um, there are a lot of young clades on this very young landmass mm-hmm. that's only a few hundred thousand years old, like I said before, and it's just kind of. I don't know, it, it's uh it's kind of nice to have yeah. that sort of like, oh wow, I kind of knew that, but right thank you for letting me know, analysis.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's what one of my committee members always called sanity checks, right? And and wow. you can have these ideas, mm-hmm. you can have anecdotes, you can have a lot of people telling right. you these things, and that's great. But until you got the data, it, they're just stories, right? <laughs> right? Right, right.
1: So you know what we kind of took away from all of this was the Lake Wales Ridge was both was hosting both, was acting both as a sort of cradle mm-hmm. for new species, for newer species rather, for for more recently diverged clades, and also um, being a museum for older lineages wow. that you know might have had broader distributions before, but then are just kind of more relictual in the lake wells ridge yeah, uh, and then you know the atlantic coastal ridge being the relatively new landmass that it is new land uh, geologic formation again young uh clades um recently diverged makes sense right totally um so yeah taking that away you know it, it's really important to not you know so much not not so much in this context this is a relatively small context but um, when you look at uh, preserving landscapes, right, preserving um, land, when we, yeah. when we talk about land management, when we talk about how do we go about determining whether a parcel of land is protected or not, right? Mm. Um, you know in, in the past and you know still today and this is and this is kind of like the accepted norm, you find an endangered species in an area you go about either getting it, you know, listed, the land getting listed either as a, some sort of um, preserve or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And you're, you're focusing on preserving that one species. And when we think about making sure that we will have enough North American coastal plain <laughs> in the future, yeah. um, you know, this is a habitat that's already been 80%. Um, either cleared or destroyed and then the rest of its habitat is beginning to get degraded either right. because of fire suppression or other factors right we need to start looking you know we need to kind of not we need to look at both the presence of endangered species we need to look at um, other factors like phylogenetic diversity of areas, right? We we need to preserve landscapes and areas that have or are, are, are a wealth of um genetic diversity. Yeah. Um and in species compositions and stuff like that. And then also considering areas that are hotbeds of endemism. Um yeah. this is it, you know and this is kind of and it's funny because a lot of times it, it thankfully it kind of corresponds to places where there are lots of rare species end up being protected. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, you know, sometimes there's that overlap between endemic, um, endemism hotspots and preserved areas, but that's not always the case. And, um, particularly in, uh, in the East coast of Florida, um, <laughs> in a place that's currently as sought after by, you know, by developers, by people, by snowbirds, um, looking, you know, to set up a second home or to retire. Construction, um, especially in the last two years in Florida, has just ratcheted up um, yeah. in a way that as a native Floridian I have never seen in
0: my life. Dang.
1: And there are small sanctuaries for um these coastal dysarandra up in in you know in central east coast of Florida, but these are very small, very, very small preserves. Right. They're adjacent to private property. And so management with of those pro, you know of those preserved lands just gets that much more difficult when you're when you're next to somebody's house, right? Mm-hmm. Um and so being able to identify endemic endemism hotspots hot to then tailor conservation protocols to maximizing the amount of undeveloped or slightly degraded but still you know you can rehabilitate right uh sort of parcels of land it's going to be really important to making sure that we're able to at least preserve a modicum of the endemism and diversity that we have literally right outside of our doorstep here in south in the southeastern um united states
0: yeah and i mean in- uh, above all of that is is the conditions that made for it in the first place, the land that made it possible, right? And right. you know, again, you could think of doing taxonomy or systematics in a lab, kind of closer away, siloed off and just really thinking about, well, this is related to this, this is roughly how old the clade is. Cool. Awesome. Cool. I welcome it. it. But right. <laughs> here's a really cool example of how you kind of stumbled into a group of plants they're known but not really showstoppers no one's writing right. books about them per se and look what you've uncovered you've uncovered biogeography ge- you've uncovered deep time you've uncovered paleo versus neoendemism. why and how Whoa. that can happen you know right. like you said basic biology basic evolutionary lessons to be learned from all of this but then to extend that all is this question of well, why does it happen? What conditions produce it? And how do we protect that? Right. And and just all of these implications that come from fundamental theoretical scientific Mm -hmm. understanding and, and being able to bridge that gap between the theory, especially the applied side of things is so vital and so sadly rare these days. But when you hear stories like yours, you go, Oh my gosh, that's a no brainer. Why aren't we doing that more often? I know funding and time are always a, a limit, but like, (laughs) Did you think for a second that when they were like, hey, we got this mint thing going on, that all of this would fall into place? Never.
1: I never (laughs) thought in a million years that that this whole story and, and, you know, not right. You're so right when you talk about like you think about taxonomy being kind of like this sort of dry and rigid sort of, okay, this is related to this. This is related to that. No, I mean, just think outside of the box for a moment and and think about the implications that basic science has. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, this is a lot of times people in the applied sciences think, oh, well, you guys are just, you know, looking at flowers. You're just, you know, trying to, <laughs> you're just trying to tell a story. Oh, isn't that cute of you guys? Right. And I'm like, no, it, I understand it, but it's just, this is, this is the This is the basis on which we begin understanding the organisms and the landscapes that are literally critical to our survival. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I'm just doing my little part. I'm, you know, chipping away that one little tiny corner of of plant knowledge. Right. Yeah. But, you know, even then I can't help but look at the implications of, of what I've got here, you know, Mm -hmm. I've sort of told, And, and, you know, I'm just that much more, (laughs) I'm very invested in their future as, as it played as you you might imagine now. Um, But, but, you know, it's just, I, it's, it's something that's bigger than these species. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um. It's ensuring that literally the biosphere is habitable for us for another X amount of time, right? Yeah, it all starts with basic science. It all starts with, with you know, somebody deciding that this is worth studying, that this is worth investing in. Mm-hmm. Shout out to NSF for <laughs> all of their, all of the funding that they've you know generously given. Um, to, to funding, you know, this project over the years and all the other, you know, Florida Native Plant Society is another huge um, stakeholder here in Florida that's helping out immensely in making sure that these plants survive um, literally everyday hazards, whether it be recently they took care of um, surveying and sampling up in literally migrating a population that was going to be a dice ranger that was going to be destroyed by a utility company wow and it was one of three populations left so it was just kind of like you know it's it's all hands on deck yeah yeah (laughs) it's um it really is implications are wide reaching and you know i never even dreamed of of you know of the sort of impact that this sort of work has so shout out to people in grad school, if what you're doing at that, you know, in this moment, you don't necessarily see the implications of <laughs> kind of losing steam and sort of a bit of inspiration, you know, if, if you're working on a group and, and, and you're, you, you feel invested in it, follow, just yeah. follow your heart, follow your heart. And, and you'll quickly realize that, you know, this is, this is work worth, worth doing.
0: Totally. And and even if it's not this groundbreaking, oh, my gosh, or you don't right. have the time or money or funding, or even if you're not in the sciences, like if you care about a group, tell their story. Yeah. Something okay. fascinating is going on. Some pieces are better than no pieces at all. And and frankly, we don't have the luxury of sitting alone, siloed away, not thinking out of the box anymore. No. Like it, it, What's going to happen if we don't cross aisles and start working together to try to do something? One
1: thousand percent. I totally. completely agree. Right. And, and this is where and this is where all of these different stakeholders, whether it be these um, these plant societies, citizen science groups, people that just give a damn. Yeah, really. Right. <laughs> right. Um, getting people involved in even even if their interest is is, you know, beginner lever level. You know, I've, I've worked with people that had just met Dysarandra or had just talked to, at a native plant meeting, and they're like, I had never heard of this plant before, but I want to do something in order to make it. Like, oh, can I grow it? Can I get it from a native plant nursery and grow it in my yard? Can I do surveys with the society? Can I, you know, just goes on and on. And, and And really, it's reaching out. It's communicating. It's making sure that everyone is on board, right? Yeah. Making sure also that the people... That are adjacent to these populations, you know, have they they know what's going on right um, with that species that's in that lot next to them, right? They're not divorced completely from yeah. the idea that that native plant's existence is helping your
0: existence, yeah. right? To talk to landowners, please. Like so uh, much of it's on private yeah, property, and really is. It not really all is. of them want to just mow it over and kill it. Like maybe they just right? don't know it's there. Talk to them about it. Tell right. them just like don't annoy them, don't piss them off. Like work with them. Work
1: with them, right? Yeah. Right. And like you said, reach across and, and 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 meeting them and explaining the things, you know, and and meet them where they're at. Right. It's yeah. It's just kind of yeah. Like, it's 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 that. It's it's uh, this is a work of. Of patience
0: and love. And how. But with that in yeah. mind, you know, if people want to figure out more about what you have going on, what work you're doing, where do you recommend they go to learn more about Dr. Naranjo's work?
1: I am available on Twitter. Follow me at um, cleverly named at Dicer Andre. Nice. Um, <laughs> so D-I-C-E-R-A-N-D-R-E. Um, I'm on all of the other, uh, more academic sort of social networking profiles as well, but Dicer Andra, Dicer Andre on Twitter is more or less where I post most of my research updates and any sort of work that I'm, I find interesting or, or I'd like to highlight. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where you can find me.
0: Excellent. Well, Dr. Norhano, thank you so much for taking time to show us how passionate you are about this subject and for really telling the story about these mints and their history and and really putting it all together in such a nice way and, and, and really a holistic way. We really appreciate it.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's really been a pleasure and an honor. And I'm really looking forward to listening to this on
0: Spotify. (laughs) You're brave listening to your own voice. I can't even do it. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Hey, no, having self-esteem is a good thing. So keep it. Have it. (laughs) Tell me what it's like. (laughs) Well, this is great. Again, thank you again for your time and hang in there, but uh, keep it up.
1: Great. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Cheers. Bye. All right. Fascinating stuff. I thank Dr. Naranjo for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And as always, if you're curious to learn more about this subject, just go check the show notes over at indefensaplants.com podcast, because that's where I post everything related to each episode. Of course, while you're over there, consider supporting the show. You can buy a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, stickers, and of course you could become a patron over at patreon.com slash It's the only way the show works, so thank you to everyone who has supported it to date. I couldn't be doing it without you. Speaking of supporters, I have a shout-out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Dorothy, who signed up over at Patreon at the producer credit level. So they're getting all of the kickbacks we offer at Patreon, and they're helping make sure the show has a future. So thank you again, Dorothy. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. As always, make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.